Chapter Eight of Pagan Passions by Randall Garrett and Lawrence Jennifer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. Noise. Forrester, seated in the great golden palanquin supported by twelve hefty priests of Dionysus, had never seen or heard anything like it. He waited there on the steps of the little temple on the green for the procession to wind by so that he could take his place at the end of it. But the procession looked endless. First there came a corps of priests and myrmidons, leading their way stolidly through the paths of Central Park. Following them came the revelers, a mass of men and women marching, laughing, singing, shouting, dancing their way along to the accompaniment of more music than Forrester had ever dreamed of. The Dionysians had practiced for months, and almost everything was represented. There were violinists prancing alone, violists and a crew of long-haired gentlemen and ladies playing the viola da gamba and the viola d'amore. There were guitarists plunking madly away, banjo players strumming, and ukulele addicts picking at their strings, somehow all chorusing together. In a special pair of floats there were bass players, bass fiddle players, and cellists, jammed tightly together and somehow managing to draw enormous sounds and scratches out of their big instruments. And behind them came the main band of musicians. The woodwinds followed, piccolo players piping, flutist fluting, oboe players, red-cheeked and glassy-eyed, concentrating on making the most piercing possible sounds. Men playing English horns, clarinets, bass clarinets, bassoons and contrabassoons, along with men playing serpents, and behind them a dancing group fingering ocarinas and adding their bit to the general tumult, and two women tootling madly away on hoarse-sounding zudabars. And then near the center of the musicians were the brass, trumpets and trumpets of piston, trombones and valve trombones, and folk horns, all blatting away to split the sky with maddening sound. Sousaphones and saxophones and French horns and bass horns and hunting horns and tubas along in their own little cart, six round-cheeked men lost in the curves of the great instruments, valiantly blowing away as they rolled by into the woods of the park, making the city itself resound with tremendous noise and shattering cadence. And behind them was the battery. Kettle drums, bass drums, xylophones, Chinese gongs, vibraphones, snare drums, and high-hat cymbals paraded by in carts, banged and stroked and tinkled enthusiastically by crew after crew of maddened timpanists. And then came the others on foot tambourines and woodblocks and parade cymbals and castanets. At the tail of this portion of the procession came a single old man wearing spectacles and riding in a small cart drawn by a donkey. He had white hair and he was playing on a series of water glasses filled to various levels. His ear was cocked toward the glasses with painstaking care. 
He was entirely inaudible in the general din, but he looked happy and satisfied. He was doing his bit. After him followed a group of entirely naked men and women playing sackbutts, and another group playing recorders. Bringing up the rear, as the procession curved, was a magnificent aggregation of men and women yowling away on bagpipes of all shapes and sizes. All of the men wore sporins and nothing more. The women wore nothing at all. The music that emanated from this group was enough to unhinge the mind. And then came the keyboard instruments, into the middle of which the five theremin players had been stuck for no reason at all. The strange howls of this unearthly instrument filtered through the sounds of pianos, harpsichords, psalters, clavichords, virginals, and three gigantic electric organs pumping at full strength. And bringing up the very rear of the procession was a special decorated cart full of color and holding a lone man with long white hair wearing a rusty black suit and playing away with great attention and care on the largest steam calliope forester had ever met jets of steam fizzed out of the top and music bawled from the interior of the massive thing as it went by trailing the procession into the woods and the entire aggregation swung into a single song hundreds upon hundreds of musicians and singers all coming down hard on the opening strains of the hymn to dionysus mine eyes have seen the glory of the lord who rules the wine he has tramped out the vintage of the grapes upon the vine the twelve priests picked up the palanquin and forrester adjusted his weight so they wouldn't find it too heavy it was impossible to think in the mass of noise and music that went on and on as the procession wound uptown through the paths of central park and the musicians banged and scraped and blew and pounded and stroked and plucked and the great hymn rose into the air filling the entire city with a bald chorus as even the twelve priests joined in adding to the ear-splitting din glory glory dionysus glory glory dionysus glory glory dionysus while his wine goes flowing on forrester had always been disturbed by what he thought might have been a double meaning in that last line but it didn't disturb him now nothing seemed to disturb him as the procession wound on and he was laughing uproariously and winking and nodding at his worshippers as they sang and played all around him and the hours went by halfway there he fished in the air and brought down the small golden discs with the picture of dionysus on them that were a regular feature of the processional and flung them happily into the crowd ahead only one was allowed per person, so there was not much scrabbling, but some of the coins pattered down on the various instruments, and one landed in the old gentleman's middle sea water glass and had to be fished out before he could go on with the hymn. Carousing and noisy, the procession finally reached the huge stand at the far end of the park, and the music stopped. On the stand was a whole new group of musicians, harpists, lyrists players of the flagolette and dulcimer 
two men sweating over glockenspiels, a group equipped with zithers and chathras and sitars, three women playing nose flutes, two men with shofars, and a tall blonde man playing a clarino trumpet. As the procession ground to a halt, this new band struck up the hymn again, played it through twice, and then stopped. Seven girls filed out onto the platform in front of the musicians. One was there representing every year since the last sabbatical bacchanal. Forrester, riding high on the palanquin, beamed down at them, roaring with happy laughter. They were all for him. Having been carried to one end of the park in triumph, he was now to march back at the head of his people, surrounded by seven of the most beautiful girls in New York. Their final selection had been left, he knew, to a brewery which had experience in these matters. And the girls certainly looked like the pick of anybody's crop. Forrester beamed at them again, stood up in the palanquin, and spread his arms wide. Then he sprang. In a flying leap he went high into the air and did a full somersault, landing on his toes on the stage twenty-five feet away. The girls were kneeling in a circle around him. "'Come, my doves!' he bellowed. "'Come, my pigeons!' His godlike golden baritone carried for blocks. He grabbed the two nearest girls by their hands and helped them to their feet. They blushed and lowered their eyes. "'Come, all of you!' Forrester shouted. We are about to begin the revels. The girls rose, and Forrester gestured them in closer. Then, surrounded by all seven, he threw back his head again. A revel to make history, he roared. A revel beyond the imagination of man. A revel fit for your god. The crowd cheered wildly. Forrester picked up one of the girls, tossed her into the air, and caught her easily as she descended. He set her on her feet and put his hands solidly on his hips. "'My cup!' he shouted. "'Fill you my cup!' Behind the stage was a corps of priests guarding a mountainous golden hogshead of wine, adjudged the finest wine produced during the year. "'We shall have drink!' Forrester shouted, "'We shall let the revels roar on!' Two priests came forward, staggering under the weight of a gigantic crystal goblet containing fully two gallons of the clear purple liquid. They bore it to Forrester with great pomp, and before them came a dozen players on the gahoon and the contra-gahoon, making Forrester's ears ring with deafening fanfares. Forrester took the great goblet in one hand and held it with ease. Then he lifted it into the air and, with a wordless shout, filled his lungs and laughed. He put the goblet to his lips and drained it in a single long motion. A mighty hurrah shook the trees and rocks of the park. Forrester waved the goblet. Again, fill you my cup once more. He embraced the seven girls with one sweeping gesture of his arms. My little beauties must have drink. Fill you the cup. He passed it back to the priests carefully. They received it and went back to where the others were waiting to fill it. 
Then they staggered forward again, and Forrester picked up the brimming goblet. He held it for the girls, each of whom tried to outdrink the others. But it was still more than half full when they were finished. Forrester raised it again. The crowd shouted. "'Observe your god!' Forrester roared. "'Observe his powers!' He threw his head back and emptied the goblet. Then, holding it in one hand, he faced the assemblage and delivered himself of one godlike belch. The crowd shrieked its approval. Forrester had the goblet filled once more and put three of the girls in charge of it. Then he came down the steps from the platform and began the long march back to the temple on the green. The shouting, carousing revelers followed him joyfully. Halfway back, one of them stumbled forward and caught at the trailing edge of his robe. There was an immediate crackle and burst of static electricity, and the stumbler fell back, yelping and shaking his arms. The Myrmidons came and took him away. Dionysus couldn't be touched by anyone except those authorized to do so, the seven girls and the priests. But Forrester barely noticed the accident. He was too happy on top of his world, laughing and hugging the girls close to him. Behind him, the priests at the Golden Hogshead, now free to taste the wine themselves, had lost no time. They were dipping in busily with their own goblets, a good deal smaller than the two-gallon crystal one for Dionysus himself. There was not even any need for libations. Enough ran over the brimming edges of the goblets to take care of that detail, and the priests were soon well on their way to becoming snozzled. The musicians, now joined by the corps which had waited on the uptown stage, struck up a new tune, and drowned out even the shouting crowds as they cheered their god. After a little while the crowds began to sing along with a magnificent noise. Dionysus wrapped his hand around the goblet, around the goblet, around the goblet. Dionysus wrapped his hand around the goblet, and we'll all get stinking drunk. It was by no means an official hymn, but Forrester didn't mind. It was sung with such a great deal of honest enthusiasm. He himself did not join in the singing. He was otherwise occupied. With his arms around two of the girls, drinking now and then from the great goblet three more were holding, and winking and laughing at the extra two, he made his joyous way down the petal-strewn paths of Central Park. The procession wound down through the paths, over bridges and under tunnels, singing and playing and marching and dancing madly, while Forrester, at its head, caroused as merrily as any four of them. They reached a bridge crossing a little stream, and Forrester sprang at it with a great somersaulting leap that carried the two girls he was holding right along with him. He set them down at the slope of the bridge, laughing and giggling, and the other girls, with the procession behind them, soon caught up. Forrester let go of one of the girls, grabbed the goblet with his free hand, and swung it in a magnificent gesture. Forward! he cried. The procession surged over the bridge, Forrester at its head. He grabbed the girl again, handing the goblet back to his corps of three carriers, and bowed and grinned at his worshippers behind him, surging forward, and at some others standing under the bridge, ankle-deep, shin-deep, even knee-deep, in the rushing water, 
craning their necks upward to get a really good view of their god as he passed over. There were over a hundred of them there. Forrester didn't see a hundred of them. He saw one of them first, and then two more. And time seemed to stop with a grinding halt. Forrester wanted to run and hide. He clutched the girls closer to him with one instinctive gesture, and then he realized he'd made the wrong move, but it was too late. He was lost, he told himself dolefully. The sun had gone out, the wine had lost its power, and the celebration had degenerated to a succession of ugly noises. The first face he saw belonged to Gerda Symes. In that timeless instant, Forrester felt that he could see every detail of the soft, small face, the dark hair, the slim, curved figure. She was smiling up at him, but her face looked a little bewildered, as if she were smiling only because it was the thing to do. Forrester wondered, panic-stricken, how she, an Athenan, had managed to get entry to a Dionysian revel, but his wonder only lasted for a second. Then he saw the second and third faces, and he knew. The second face belonged to an absolute stranger. He looked like an oafish clod, even viewed objectively, and Forrester was making no efforts in that direction. He had one arm around Gerda's waist, and he was grinning up at her and sideways at Forrester, with a look that made them co-conspirators in what was certainly planned to be Gerda's seduction. Forrester didn't like the idea. As a matter of fact, he hated it more than he could possibly say. But all he could do was trust to Gerda's own doubtless sterling good sense. She couldn't possibly prefer a lout like her current escort to good old Bill Forrester, could she? On the other hand, she thought Bill Forrester was dead. She'd had to think that. When he became Dionysus the Lesser, he couldn't just disappear. He had to die officially. And as far as Gerda knew, the death wasn't just an official formality. With Bill Forrester dead, then, had she turned to the oaf for comfort? He didn't look very comforting, Forrester thought. He looked like a damned outrage on the face of the earth. Forrester disliked him on first sight, and knew perfectly well that any future sights would only increase the dislike. It was the third face, though, that explained everything. The third face was as unmistakable as Gerda's, though in an entirely different way. It was fleshy and pasty, and it belonged, of course, to Gerda's lovable brother, Ed. Forrester saw everything in one flash of understanding. Ed Symes obviously had enough pull to get his sister invited to the Bacchanal. And from the looks of Gerda, he hadn't let the matter rest there. She was holding a half-filled plastic mug of wine in one hand, a mug with a picture of Dionysus stamped on it, which for some reason increased Forrester's outrage, and she was trying her best to look as if she were reveling. From the looks of her, Ed had managed to get her about eight inches this side of half-pickled, and from the horribly cheerful look on Ed's countenance, he wasn't about to stop at the half-pickled mark either. Of course, from Ed's point of view, and Forrester told himself sternly that he had to be fair about this whole thing, 
From Ed's point of view, there was nothing wrong in what was happening. He wanted to cheer Gerda up. Undoubtedly the news of the Forrester demise had been quite a shock to her, poor girl. And what better way than introduce her to his own religion, the best of all possible religions? The autumn bacchanal must have looked like the perfect time and place for that introduction, and Gerda's escort, a friend of Ed's, somehow Forrester had to think of him as Ed's friend. It was clearly not possible that he was Gerda's. He had been brought along to help cheer the girl up and show her the advantages of worshipping Dionysus. Unfortunately, the advantages hadn't turned out to be all that had been expected of them, because now Gerda had seen Forrester alive and— Wait a minute, Forrester told himself. Gerda hadn't seen William Forrester at all. She had just seen what she expected to see. Dionysus, god of wine. There was no reason for him to shrink from her or to try to hide. Just because he was walking along with seven beautiful girls, drinking about sixteen times the consumption of any normal right-thinking fish, and carousing like the most unprincipled of men, he didn't have to be ashamed of himself. He was only doing his job. And Gerda did not know that he wasn't Dionysus. The thought made him feel a little better, but it saddened him, too, just a bit. He set himself grimly and shouted, "'Forward!' once more. To his own ears his voice lacked conviction, but the crowd didn't seem to notice. They cheered frantically. Forrester wished they would all go away. He started forward. His foot found a large pebble that hadn't been there before and he performed the magnificent feat of tripping on it. He flailed the air frantically and managed to regain his balance. Then he was back on his feet, clutching at the girls. His big left toe hurt, but he ignored the agony bravely. He had to think of something to do, and fast. The crowd had seen him stumble, and that just didn't happen to a god. It wouldn't have happened to him, either, except for Gerda. He got his mind off Gerda with an effort and thought about what to do to recover his slip. In a moment he had it. He swore a great oath, empurpling the air. Then he bent down and picked up the stone. He held it aloft for a second and then threw it. Slowly and carefully he pointed his index finger at it, extending it and raising his thumb like a little boy playing stick-em-up. Zap! he said mildly, cocking the thumb forward. A crackling, searing bolt of blue-white energy leaped out of the tip of his index finger in a pencil-thin beam. It sped toward the falling pebble, speared it, and wrapped it in coruscating splendor. Then the pebble exploded, shattering into a fine display of flying dust. The crowd stopped moving and singing immediately. Only the musicians, too intent on their noise-making to see what had gone on, went on playing. But the crowd, having seen Forrester's display and heard his oath, was as silent as a collection of statues. When a god becomes angry, each was obviously thinking there was absolutely no telling what was going to happen. Foxholes, some of them might have told themselves, would definitely be a good idea. But, of course, there weren't any foxholes in Central Park. There was nothing to do but stand very still and hope you weren't noticed and hope for the best. 
Even Gerda, Forrester saw, had stopped. Her face still, her hand lifted in a half-finished wave, the plastic cup forgotten. I've got to do something, Forrester thought. I can't let this kind of thing go on. He thought fast, spun around, and pointed directly at Ed Symes, standing in the water below the bridge. You there, he bellowed. Symes turned a delicate fish belly white. Against this basic color, his pimples stood out strongly, making, Forrester thought, a rather unusual and somewhat striking effect. The man looked as if he wished he could sink out of sight in the ankle-deep water. His mouth opened two or three times. Forrester waited, getting a good deal of pleasure out of the simple sight. Finally, Syme spoke. Me? Certainly you. You look like a tough young specimen. Symes tried to grin. The effect was ghastly. I do, he said tentatively. Of course you do. Your god tells you so. Do you doubt him? Doubt? No, absolutely not. Never. Uh, wouldn't think of it. Uh, tough young specimen. That's what I am. Tough uh, and young. Uh, tough young specimen. Certainly. You bet. Good, Forrester said. Now let's see you in action. Symes took a deep breath. He seemed to be savoring it as though it was going to be his very last. What do you want me to do? I want you to pick up another stone and throw it. Let's see how high you can get it. Symes was obviously afraid to move from his spot in the water. Instead of going back to the land, he fished around near his feet and finally managed to come up with a pebble almost as big as his fist. He looked at it doubtfully. "'Throw!' Forrester said in a voice like thunder. Symes galvanized, threw. It flew up in the air. Forrester drew a careful bead on it, went zap again with his pointed finger, and blasted the rock into dust. The silence hung on. Forrester laughed. <laughs> Not a bad throw for a mortal. And a good trick, too. A fine display. He faced the crowd. Now, there, what do you say to the entertainment your god provides? Wasn't that fun? Well, naturally it was, if Dionysus said so. A great trick, as a matter of fact, and a perfectly wonderful display. The crowd agreed immediately, giving a long, rousing cheer. Forrester waved at them, and then turned to a squad of Myrmidons standing nearby. "'Go to that man and his friends,' he shouted, noticing that Symes's knees had begun to shake. The Myrmidons obeyed. "'See that they follow near me. Allow them to remain close to me at all times. I may need a good stone-thrower later.' Gerda, her brother, and the oaf without a name were rounded up in a hurry, and soon found themselves being hustled along, willy-nilly, out of the water, up onto the bridge, and into Dionysus's van, where they followed in the wake of the god, in front of the rest of the procession. Of the three, Forrester noted, Gerda was the only one who didn't seem to think the invitation a high honor. The sight gave him a kind of hope. And at least, he thought, I can keep an eye on her this way. 
the procession wended its way on bending slowly southward toward the little temple on the green again the musicians played energetically switching now from the hymn to their unofficial little ditty some switched before others some switched after and some never bothered to switch at all the battery caught between the opposing claims of two perfectly good songs and a lot of extraneous matter filled in as best as they could with a good deal of forceful banging and pounding aided by the steam calliope and the result of all effort was a growing cacophony that should have been terribly unpleasant but somehow wasn't the shouting of the crowd joking and singing may have had something to do with it nothing was clearly distinguishable but the general feeling was that a lot of noise was being produced and that was all to the good noise could have been packaged by the board foot and sold in quantities sufficient to equip every town meeting throughout the country in full for seven years and there would have been enough left over forrester thought to provide for the subways the classrooms the offices and even a couple of really top grade traffic jams gerda and the others of her party marched quietly ed forrester noticed tried a few cheers but he got cold stares from his sister and soon desisted the oaf shambled along his arm no longer around gerda's waist this pleased forrester no end and he was in quite a happy mood by the time the procession reached the temple on the green he was so happy that he performed his atoning high jump once again this time with a double somersault and a jackknife thrown in just to make things interesting and landed gently feeling positively exhilarated and very godlike on the roof of the temple as the procession straggled in the music stopped forrester cleared his throat and shouted in his most penetrating roar to the silent assemblage hear me the crowd stirred looked up and paid him the most rapt attention on with the revels he roared let the dancing begin let my wine flow like the streams of the park let joy be unrestrained he stood on the roof then watching the crowd begin to disperse it was the middle of the afternoon and forrester was amazed at how quickly the time had passed the procession itself had taken a good six hours from start to finish now that he looked back on it but it certainly hadn't seemed so long and he didn't even feel tired in spite of all the dancing and cavorting he had gone in for he did feel slightly intoxicated but he wasn't sure how much of that feeling was due purely and simply to the liquor he had managed to consume but otherwise he told himself he felt perfectly fine the musicians were breaking up into little groups of three or four or five and going off to play softly to themselves among the trees the man with the steam calliope sat exhausted over his keyboard the old man with the water glasses was receiving the earnest congratulations of a lot of people who looked like relatives and now that the official music-making was over a lot of amateurs playing jews harps and tissue paper covered combs and slide whistles had broken out their contraptions and were gaily making a joyful noise unto their god if 
Forrester thought you wanted to call it joyful. The general tenor of the sound was a kind of swooping, bat-like whine. Forrester stared down. There were Gerda and her brother and the oaf. They were standing close by the temple, three myrmidons keeping guard over them. The rest of the crowd had dissolved into little bunches spreading all over the park. Forrester knew he would have to leave, too, and very soon. There were seven girls waiting for him down below. Not that he minded the idea. Seven beautiful girls, after all, were seven beautiful girls. But he did want to keep an eye on Gerda, and he wasn't sure whether he would be able to do it when he got busy. Somewhere in the bushes, someone began to play a kazoo, adding the final touch of melancholy and heartbreak to the music. The formal and official part of the bacchanal was now over. The real fun, Forrester thought dismally, was about to begin. End of chapter 8